Hey, everyone. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is Tony. Super glad you're here. If this is your first day, welcome. You came on the right day. We are starting the Gospel of Mark. Um, you know, it's I, two things. One, so I didn't grow up reading the Bible, really, and I didn't really grow up with any knowledge of the Scriptures or church, really. <laughs> And my first exposure, actually, to Jesus and the Bible was reading the Gospel of Mark. Um, It was actually in reading the Gospel of Mark that my life just fundamentally changed as I encountered the person of Jesus. I just want to say today, uh, I really hope that over this next year, you have that same experience. I really want some folks in this room that maybe are sort of dipping their toe into the kingdom and into church and into this place that you would come to know who Jesus really is. That's my prayer. That's my hope. Um, Yeah, so with that said, we're going to be in Mark. Uh, I think it might be helpful to have a couple really quick introductory remarks. Remark. uh, That's going to get old. Um, All right. So just authorship-wise, most people think the Gospel of Mark was written by a guy named Mark who was also in the book of Acts. You'll see him pop up a time or two. I would encourage you to read through Acts. You can see him. Uh, a lot of people think that he, basically the basis of his gospel is a lot of what Peter told him when he was hanging out with Peter in Rome. Two, uh, Mark is likely written earlier than any of the other gospels, maybe even as early as 50 or 60 AD. Uh, which matters for a lot of reasons, uh, but one in particular, like Mark actually would have been able to talk to people that saw Jesus, that walked with Jesus, that heard Jesus teach. So he knew all these people, he gathered this information and then presents it to readers like us. Now this morning, uh, we're going to cover 13 verses, which doesn't probably sound like a lot, but the Gospel of Mark literally is shaped by this one word, immediately. And you're going to feel it. It's going to be this like freight train that is moving with urgency. And you're going to be like, wait, Tony, can we stay more there? And it's like, no, Mark is moving us through. And you're going to feel a little bit of this energy. And sometimes you're going to wish, wait, can we stop there? But Mark spends three verses on it. And then he's off to the next thing. So a little patience there. It might feel like you're drinking out of a fire hose. I'm going to do my best to make it feel less like that. Um, Let's start with verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, if you're not super used to the New Testament or the gospel of Mark in particular, I just want to clarify something that confused me early on. When I first read this, I just assumed uh, that Christ was Jesus' last name. I just want you to know that's not accurate. Uh, So Christos in Greek, right, is where it flows out of the Hebrew for anointed or the Mashiach, the Messiah, right? There was these clues in the story of Israel in the Old Testament that there would be this person who would come that would You know, if you think back to uh, Genesis 3, there's this snake that deceives Adam and Eve, but there's this sort of cryptic line about a coming snake crusher, right? The Messiah is going to be this coming snake crusher. This Messiah is going to be kind of like Moses, kind of like David. This son of man is going to come and he's going to set 
Israel free from oppression. When you're in the story of Israel, there's this hope baked in over centuries that this one man will come. Jesus Christ, right? Christos. And Jesus, actually, the way we say it, right, comes from the Greek, but actually comes from the word Joshua or Yeshua, which means the Lord is salvation or God saves. So the gospel of Jesus Christ, God's anointed who saves us. Now, second, I want to point something out that I hope isn't controversial, because that would be just unhelpful to begin a message with something controversial, but I think it's important. When I first started going to church, um, when I heard the word gospel, I had a very specific sort of idea in mind. It was something like this. This is what people said all the time. What is the gospel? It's this. You are a sinner. Christ died on your behalf. If you accept him as your Lord and Savior, he will forgive you and welcome you into his family. Have anyone heard this? Something version of this, right, as the gospel. Uh, And I I just want to say very clearly, this is totally correct theologically. These are all true theological statements. But I want us to notice at the very beginning, in verse 1, Mark introduces the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and then proceeds to write a story about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He does not do a Twitter post, right, saying, you are a sinner, Jesus died on your behalf, if you accept him as your Lord and Savior, he will forgive you and welcome you into his family. So what's going on there? How do we make sense of this? Scott McKnight, in his book, it's called King Jesus, I think makes a really helpful distinction. He says this phrase that we often say is the gospel is really the plan of salvation, okay? And what that means is it is a central part of the gospel, but not the totality of the gospel or good news that is being announced in the first century. Right? If you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all tell the story of Jesus' life, death, resurrection. They share the gospel by telling the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. The gospel is all about Jesus not only about how we get saved, right? It's bigger than just us. Jesus is going to come on the scene and he's going to actually really attack the kingdom of darkness. He's going to heal people. He's going to set people free. And then the authors of the New Testament say that he will return again to make all things new, all of creation, of which the plan of salvation is a central and beautiful part or way that we can participate in the family of God, but is not the totality of the good news being articulated in the first century. Are you following me? That was my best. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) I don't get applauses very often. Okay. Third, the gospel for Mark and the rest of the authors of the New Testament is the announcement of the good news that Jesus fulfills, completes, and resolves Israel's story written in the Old Testament. This is really important. We have to appreciate that the story of Jesus only makes sense within the story of Israel. 
Right in the story of Israel, you have God creating all things. You have human beings falling, going their own way. You have God calling Abraham to make a new people, to form a people after his own heart. You have this people going their own way. And when you get to the first century, Israel is in exile but at home. And they have all these hopes that are nurtured from the story of Israel that Jesus fulfills, completes, and resolves. When you disconnect the ministry and story of Jesus from the story of Israel and the the Old Testament, things get really funky. Let's not do that. So it shouldn't surprise us that Mark, given that Jesus' story is so intimately connected to the story of Israel, announces the good news of the Messiah, and he's consistently riffing off and turning to the Old Testament. You notice this right away. How does he begin his gospel? In the beginning. Anyone heard those words before? Yeah, where do you hear them? First verse of Genesis. When God creates all things, right? In the beginning. Mark is riffing back to this story that everyone knows, and he's saying, hey, with Jesus, a new creation is afoot. Mark riffs on Genesis 1, but then he also turns to the prophets. Verse 2, when he's starting to tell the story, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I will send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Mark is turning back again to the prophets of Israel that imagined a time when Israel was in exile and they were going to need someone to come to prepare the way before God showed up on the scene, right? Back to the Old Testament. Adam and Eve are in the garden. They decide they're going to kind of do what is right in their own eyes. What happens immediately after? Exile. Exiled out of Eden. God calls Abraham. What does he do? He says, promise, you know, I'm going to bring you to a land, a promised land. But this people that he forms end up doing what is right in their own eyes. What happens to them? exiled. And that's the context we're in at the start of the first century. Israel's at home, but still exiled, ruled by Rome. And the prophets foretold a time when they would need a pair of the way to come to make their paths straight so they could receive the Messiah when he was on the ground. And the prophets anticipated that this preparer of the way would start in the desert. Right? One, son, one, one day, someone would start screaming, crying in the desert. And this would be a sign that something was afoot. Right? Mark knows this. He's read the prophets. And he pulls from the prophets because why? Jesus' story fulfills, completes the story of Israel. Uh, on our way to Colorado this summer, we spent a month, we drove through many deserts to get there. Uh, one of them was the Mojave. I think I have a picture of it. And as we were going through the Mojave, I tried to imagine someone starting a movement in the desert. Imagine someone screaming in the desert. Who's going to hear them? Who starts a movement in the desert? You start a movement in the city. That's where everyone is. You start standing on street corners, whatever. You gather people. But God brings the preparer of the way into the wilderness. 
Someone starts screaming in the wilderness. And yet, this is where the preparer of the way begins. Verse 4, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him, and they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. A lot lot to say here. Uh, First, okay, this guy, John, shows up in the desert. He's proclaiming, he's screaming with clarity and purpose. The people need to own their sin and be baptized. Now, when we think of baptism, maybe we think of like last weekend, some people went to Lover's Point and they were like, yes, I'm going to declare my allegiance to Jesus in front of people, declare an inward reality with sort of an external sign getting washed in the water. But we need to appreciate actually John's context to appreciate what's really going on here. So like many ancient people, uh, Jewish people practice ceremonial washing. uh, But what's unique here is John seems to be asking Jewish people to do the thing that non-Jews were required to do in order to become Jewish. So when non-Jews were converting to Judaism, they would immerse themselves in water, often under the supervision of some sort of religious authority. And John's baptism seems to fit this model. But He's saying, all of you guys have to do it, whether you have Jewish blood or not. And we need to realize the very fact that John is telling Jewish people that they have to be baptized or repent in the exact same way that non-Jews did would have been really offensive to many people, right? Because it challenged the prevalent notion that I just needed to sort of grow up in a Jewish family have Jewish blood in order to be saved, right? Most Jewish people thought, hey, as long as I'm not like really breaking the Torah, you know, I'm sort of going through, doing the things I'm supposed to do. I'm a Jew. I was born a Jew that they'd be pretty well off. John told them instead that they need to come to God in the same way that non-Jews did. John, the preparer of the way, was leveling the playing field. We also have to realize and appreciate that for a long time, Jerusalem has been the center of the Jewish world. The temple is there. That's where you had annual festivals. This is where you went to offer sacrifices. This is where the power and authority was. But where is John? He's in the desert. He's asking people to leave the center of the Jewish world and come out into the desert in order to get the forgiveness and cleansing that they thought might have probably was only really happening in Jerusalem. Jesus, or John, is inviting people away from the temple to do a practice that was only for really non-Jews at that time, and a lot of people are going to get upset. And while this would have been really offensive to many, 
it would have also been in line with the prophets of Israel were doing throughout their history, calling people back to God. There's lots of texts in the Old Testament. I think one that captures sort of the heart of the prophet is 2 Chronicles 7, 12 through 14. If my people are called by, called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Right? As a prophet, as a preparer of the way, John was calling God's people to humble themselves and turn back to God and his kingdom in the desert through baptism. Now, I need to say something about John's attire because it's a little funny and you're like, why is this dude wearing these sort of camel hair and stuff? Well, again, back into the Old Testament, right? Elijah would have been assumed to be the preparer of the way who was coming. And this is kind of how Elijah dressed. In two kings, Elijah wears a hair garment, much like John's camel hair shirt. He wears a leather belt, just like Mark emphasizes. So John's attire is Mark's way of telling us that the Elijah we expected, the preparer of the way, is on the scene in the desert. Mark is trying to help us see that the story of Jesus is a fulfillment of the story of Israel. Right before Mark introduces Jesus, right, the main character, he wants us to know, oh, it's happening as it was supposed to happen. Now, people start to connect these dots, and they start to come out to John. All kinds of people from all over the place. He is leading this massive spiritual revival. People are literally taking vacations and walking out into the desert. They're sidestepping hundreds of years of religious activity centered around the temple. They're willingly disregarding the authorities who tell them their spiritual life should center around Jerusalem to join John in the desert. John is probably leading the largest religious movement in Israel in hundreds of years. What's so profound about John is it never seems to go to his head. In fact, John, I think, has one of the most awe-inspiring and worshipful postures in the entire scripture. He says this, after me, after me comes he who is mightier than I, whose strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I can't even imagine himself a servant, a servant in Jesus' kingdom. Right? He can't imagine himself sitting at the doorway as his master comes in and bending down, bowing before his masters in order to untie his sandals and take sandals off his dirty feet at the end of the day. Who am I to touch Jesus' feet? When I read this, I just feel really convicted. <laughs> How many times have I showed up to church and just kind of gone through the motions? How many times have I just taken Jesus' forgiveness, his presence for granted? How many times have I gotten mad at God because he wasn't doing things the way I wanted? And here's John. Literally overwhelmed by the potential arrival of Jesus. So enamored by the holiness of Jesus, he's just like, I don't even know if I can touch his feet. 
so overwhelmed by the majesty of Jesus. He can't even imagine himself a servant in his kingdom. And it's with this posture, this expectation that John carries, that Mark introduces the main character of this gospel. Verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out of the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Mark begins verse 9, right? In those days, Jesus of Nazareth. Wait, wait, what? Wait, the anointed Savior, the Son of God, was living in Nazareth, 18 miles west of me this whole time? Like from here to downtown Salinas, the Savior of the world has been living under everyone, outside of everyone's scrutiny waiting for the right moment, and the moment arrives. And like everyone else, he walks up to the Jordan, not the temple. Like everyone else, he gets baptized by John. But when he does, something really unique happens. Right? As Jesus is emerging from the water, he sees the heavens torn open, which is another way of saying there's a division, right? A tearing of the division between heaven and earth. Like Eden before the fall, it's happening right here on Jesus. There's no division between heaven and earth. And you get this sense, Jesus is the link between heaven and earth, the one who connects them. And immediately after, as Jesus ascends out of the water, the Spirit descends on Jesus. Right? The Father anointing him with the Spirit for the work he has been given to do. While the dove has a lot of meetings in the Old Testament, it's clear, it seems like in this sense, it's echoing back to right after the fall, or right after the flood, right? And the dove and Noah, and it's the signal to new beginnings, right? With Jesus, a new world is about to unfold, a world of promise, just like after the flood. And it's here, right, with this division between heaven and earth kind of ripped apart. The Spirit anointing Jesus for ministry, the dove heralding a new world that the Father speaks. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. I think this hits on two different levels. One, it's clearly a theological statement, probably echoing back to Psalm 2-7, which is a key Old Testament reference that combines the kingship and the sonship of the Messiah. Right, hinting that Jesus is both son and king. And we need to remember right now as the reader that we are getting an inside glimpse to who Jesus really is. Right? No one else on the ground seems to know this. The disciples are going to be confused for a lot of chapters. The only people who seem to understand what's going on are going to be demons. They're going to be the only ones who really see Jesus clearly. It's a theological statement, but I think it hits on a second level. I think this hits on like an emotional, relational level. The Father does not simply say, you're my man, now go do what you're called to do. He doesn't say that. 
The ESV says, with you I'm well pleased, but in Greek it's actually closer to, in whom I take pleasure. Right? Well pleased sounds kind of official. You could imagine like a king saying, knight, I'm well pleased with you. Next. Right? But I take pleasure in you. Has a different feel. I think this hits us as the reader as this kind of profound emotional, relational affirmation of the Father to the Son. And I just want to note, this is before Jesus starts any ministry. Like rocket. He's like casting out demons, healing people. Oh, with you I'm well pleased. No. This is before Jesus has done any ministry. With you, I am well pleased. And it's with that affirmation that he actually goes into the temptation narrative. Now, to appreciate the temptation, I think we need to kind of go back again to Genesis 2 and 3, right? If you recall, Adam and Eve are tempted by Satan in Eden. Now, imagine a temptation narrative. This is exactly what you would want. You would want to be in Eden. There's no sin. God is there. You have everything you need. If you're going to be tempted, you want to be in Eden. What Mark is telling us, see, in the first century, people assumed that where demons and the demonic really wanted to hang out was in the desert. So what Mark is saying is Jesus is going on to Satan's home turf in order to be tempted. And this is how Mark begins his gospel. This is his intro. You have echoes back to the prophets. You have John, the preparer of the way. You have baptism. You have temptation. And the question then is, after 13 packed verses, what do we do with this? How do we make sense of it? There are three things I think are, I don't know, maybe quite relevant that I'd like to sort of emphasize. The first is this connection between preparation, wilderness, and repentance. There was preparation that was required for people to receive God when he showed up on the scene. John calls people out of their everyday rhythms, right? Their patterns, their normal ways of being. They left Jerusalem and the city and their hometowns, and they went out into the wild desert, right? Then they were baptized. They were washed with water as a symbolic act of being cleansed by their sin. I think if we're honest, it's pretty easy to see how the busyness of everyday life We can get distracted. We can kind of lose sight of the purpose of why we are trying to follow Jesus. At Wellspring, we often talk about the difference between sort of two ways of thinking about the Christian life. One is bounded set. Uh, If you haven't heard about it, I'll sort of explain it quickly. But the idea of bounded set is you're either in or you're out. I think a lot of people think this way Uh, in the American church, and I think probably in the first century too, right? Like, You had your one day where you accepted Jesus as Lord as Savior, you're born Jewish, whatever, you're in. You're good. You're rocking it. Why? Because that one moment you accepted Jesus. But the problem is, this mentality tends to lead to stagnation. You tend to think, I'm rocking it, I'm good, I'm in. Or it leads to anxiety that you're going to be out, or if you're out, it leads to judgment that you feel like, why can't I participate? And bounded set. Centered set is another way of looking at the Christian life. And the idea is this, Jesus and his kingdom are in the center. And the question isn't whether you're in or out. The question is, are you moving closer? 
Right? I don't care whether you've come to church every week for 50 years, whether this is your first day ever in church. My question is this, are you putting Jesus at the center of your life and moving closer to him? And I think this is what John is getting at. John is saying, hey, whether you're Jewish or not, we're all going to get baptized. We are all going to declare that we are sinners. We are all going to receive forgiveness from God. We're all going to course correct, right? These are all people that grew up in the Jewish world. He's not like going to Rome at this point. This is sort of the first century churchgoer. Hey, realign your life. Reorient your life on the person of Jesus, the King who is coming. And I guess I just wonder for you today, as you walk into this room, what does it look like for you to recenter your life and your heart on the person of Jesus? Or maybe this is your first time ever in church. What does it look like for you to say, all right, Jesus, I'm going to put you at the center. The second thing I think this sort of idea of preparation, wilderness kind of combines is this pattern of withdrawal and return. Right? People left their normal patterns to be with God in the desert and then returned. Right? They didn't stay in the wilderness for 40 years, right? They went back to Jerusalem. They went back to their hometown. And I guess I just wonder for you, what patterns do you have of withdrawing from the crazy and the busy in order to connect with and be with God? Could be daily, could be weekly, could be monthly. What are those patterns? Or do those patterns just get overwhelmed and swamped by the responsibilities you carry? What does it look like for us to center our lives in Jesus? What does it look like for us to cultivate patterns of withdrawal and return so that our heart can be constantly realigned by the presence of Jesus? The second thing I want to talk about is this posture towards Jesus. Practices are great. If you're at Wellspring long enough, we will talk about practices a lot. But I want to say something that maybe I haven't said before. I think it's just really important I want us to notice John's posture even more than his practice. Sure, John baptized people. Sure, people were going out into the wilderness. What about the posture of John? I am not worthy to even untie his sandals. I remember a number of years ago, I was going with Mark with a group of, going through Mark with a group of people, and there's this guy in our group who was there every week, and one Sunday he came up to me, and he's like, you know, we've been going through this, and I kind of grew up in church, and I just thought, I was kind of taught Jesus was like my best friend, sort of like akin to like sort of a cuddly teddy bear who would always be there for me. And I, and I want to say, Jesus is a friend, <laughs> absolutely, but he is not only our friend. It was like for the first time he saw Jesus was also Lord, king of the universe. Right? The kind of being that you just fall on your face to worship. And I think when we read about John the Baptist today, it sort of reminds me that John, I think us, are invited to not take Jesus lightly simply because he is kind and gracious and patient with us. He is also God. He is king. He is master. He is Lord. 
Right? When was the last time that you just fell on your face in worshiping Jesus? When was the last time you said, God, not my will, but yours be done? When was the last time, like the angels, you just cried out in worship, holy, holy, holy is the Lord? Practices are great. Posture, I think, is even more important. What is our posture between the, before the holy king of the universe? I just want to invite you when we go into worship. I think one way to sort of shape our posture is literally to use our bodies. To put our hands up in the air to say, God, all the glory goes to you. Or to put our faces down on the ground and say, Jesus, before you I bow. What is your posture before Jesus today? The third thing I want to talk about is pleasure. I find it fascinating that on one side of Jesus' baptism, you have John with this inspiring posture of worship. And then immediately after Jesus is baptized, you have one of the most beautiful affirmations in the Bible. I love about being at this church because it's slanted. So if you drop anything, it's going to come down here. (laughs) happens so many times the best is when it's like a car and like zooms sorry in one with john you have this idea of the servant in the other you have a picture of a beloved son of the father and they're both essential aspects of the christian life and i think honestly we all long for this kind of acceptance by God. Now, if you've read the New Testament a little bit, you'll know as you kind of go on, you'll come into this phrase, hear this phrase all the time, in Christ. And it's sort of like, what does that mean? What it means in very shorthand is something like this, that is what is true of the Messiah, what is true of Jesus is also true of his followers. Therefore, when God the Father sees you, If you are a follower of Jesus, if you've given your heart and surrender to God, he also feels pleasure when he sees you. You don't need to worry about whether you are acceptable, whether you're doing the right things, whether your spiritual resume is up to snuff. You don't need to enter into some sort of performative posture. God loves you and takes pleasure in you. If you are in Christ, right? This is what it means to be saved by grace. The Father takes pleasure in you. I love that Jesus experiences the Father's pleasure before he goes into ministry, right? Because he carries that deep sense of acceptance, the Father's pleasure into whatever he does, whether he rocks it or doesn't. The Father's pleasure precedes his activity. Wouldn't it be lovely to know that no, whatever you did, whether you did it well or poorly, that the Father's pleasure, the Father saw, took pleasure in your faithfulness, in your attempts, in your feeble attempts at faithfulness. 
I want to invite the worship team back up and I want to just take a second as before they come up just to kind of pray into that a little bit because I just think, yes, we need patterns of withdrawal and return and certainly pray that our posture is worshipful. But I think on large part, worship flows out of this sense of, man, Jesus loves me so much. And as I was praying this morning, I just kind of had this sense that some of us really struggle to receive this, in part because of the ways we've been treated by our own earthly fathers. That some of us carry these lies in us that make it really hard for us to receive that the Father takes pleasure in us. So I just want to pray over us that as we sing these songs of worship, that by the power of the Spirit, that God would break whatever defenses we have established that block that sense of acceptance from the Father. God, I just ask that you would form us into a people that worship you, just like John the Baptist did, as God and King, worthy to be praised. And I pray, God, for those of us in this room who come into this space and just feel like, man, I just never really received the acceptance and grace and kindness and love of the Father. That you would just wash over us. For those of us who are in Christ, you take pleasure in us. And if you are not our follower of Jesus, Jesus climbed up on a cross and died for you before you believed, before you repented, before you acknowledged your sin. He died for you that you might be free. God, speak to us this morning. Inspire us. God, you are beautiful and you are good. May we be a people who worship at your feet.